Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. I want to start this morning with uh, a little review. Some of you have heard this before. This may be new for you, but we've talked about this a lot. Uh, A number of years ago, my dad uh, said to me, he said, Jeff, every person has to wrestle with what they do with grace and truth. The Bible says in John 1.14 that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. He said, now, every church has to decide what they're going to do with his grace and truth. Every person does. And he says, so, he says, some churches are high grace, low truth. If you walk into those churches, they will be unbelievably accepting, but a little loose sometimes with God's truth. He says, uh, sometimes, though, you walk into churches that are low grace, high truth. And you better walk on eggshells because that's about making sure you follow the rules and you get in line. When you are high truth and low grace, it's really a tough atmosphere to regularly live up to. So he said, you know, that's how oftentimes this goes. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed in my own life that sometimes I'm high grace, low truth when I want to get away with something that I know God doesn't want me to do. And that I'm Low grace, high truth when I see somebody else doing something I don't want them to do. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? So he says, hey, so you need to understand something, that the goal, the goal is to be like Jesus, and he was high grace, high truth. In other words, he was high encouragement, high challenge. There were times that when people wanted him to be just accepting and encouraging, he would still challenge. There were times when they expected to get the hammer and he was unbelievably gracious, compassionate, merciful, as well as still holding them accountable. One of the most famous examples of this is John 8, 11. I think we might be able to put that on the screen. This woman caught in the act of adultery. Everybody's going to say, okay, you're going to give her the hammer. And he says, woman, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Grace. But go, and as we often have heard it said, sin no more. Make a break with what you're doing. I'm challenging you to leave that life and go a different way. High grace, high truth, okay? So keep that in mind as we think about this subject today. Now here's another thing I want you to do. If you look up here on the screen, we should have a picture of a a person. that. do, do, Do you recognize this? I know some people may not know about this guy in this generation, but who is this? W.C. Fields. Now, if you don't know about this guy, he was a very uh, humorous guy, was known for his disparaging look at life and anything that was noble and good, and he was, he was not a Christian by his own admission. So imagine the shock one day when one of his friends walks into his hospital room and sees W.C. Fields sitting in his hospital bed thumbing through a Bible. He says, W.C., what are you doing there looking in the Bible? And he said, Just looking for loopholes, young man. Just looking for loopholes. (laughs) Now, here's why I bring this up. In the passage we're going to look at today, if you're following along in the notes, is that in Jesus' day, people are looking for loopholes. In Jesus' day, when it comes to the subject of marriage, people are looking for loopholes. 
And so uh, that, what I mean by that, they're trying to lower God's standard for marriage and they're wanting Jesus to be fine with that, to be accepting about that. And so the question is, what is he going to do? And so today, I want to just tell you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 16. We're going to look at one or two verses there before we actually move to Matthew 19. And we're in this series called The Life of Christ, and we're studying how Jesus taught how he interacted, his words, his works, and mostly his way, the way that he lived, the way that he teaches us to live. And so I want to just be honest with you, we are actually coming back to this verse because as we thought about it, before we end this series, even even though we weren't trying to cover every verse in the Gospel of Luke, we just are so aware, a number of people have said, you know, there's a lot of marriages that are in trouble in our country and in our church. There's a lot of divorces that are becoming more common. People, kids are growing up in environments where that's just become more normal. And wouldn't it be good to at least hear what Jesus says on this? And so again, uh, we felt like God was saying, prompting us to do that. And so that's what we're going to do today. But uh, let me just uh, invite you uh, to look at verse 18 there in Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 730 in the Black Bibles. Then I'll tell you where Matthew 19 is in just a moment. But let me just read this verse. Here's what Jesus says. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Interesting wording. What does all that mean? And if it means nothing else, what Jesus is saying is, is that the marriage bond was meant to be so permanent that if you try and get out of it and marry someone else, if you're trying to get out so you can marry someone else, you're actually committing adultery in God's sight because he never wanted you to do that. Well, look at the verse right in front of it. It says this. He says this. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. He's talking again about how there's this temptation to relax what God says in his moral law in order to make it more acceptable for us to be okay with different decisions. And Jesus is saying, be careful about that. Don't be a person that's looking for loopholes. Be a person that's looking for God's heart to understand how he sees things. So I want to invite you, since this is just brief, this is actually found in several other contexts in Mark and uh, Matthew's Gospels. Today we're going to mainly look at Matthew 19. So I'm going to ask you to turn left and go back to Matthew 19. If you're using, again, the Black Bibles, it's on page 689. If you want to turn there, and we'll spend some time there today as we look at Jesus' teaching on divorce. And as you're turning there, can you multitask? Uh, Can you do two things at once there? If you're following along the notes, here's what I want you to see. This has really struck me, because some of you are here today, and you're going, this subject doesn't apply to me. Bummer, I showed up, and I I think I'm just now going to have to just sit through a message that has nothing to do with me. Let me just tell you that what struck me this week is that Jesus has something to say to all of us, whether we're in a marriage relationship or not, whether we've gone through a divorce or been touched by divorce or not, is that in every relationship, there's something we need to know. And that is, if you're following along in the notes, Jesus repeatedly brings people back to the state of their heart. 
Jesus repeatedly brings people back to the state of their heart. And I want you to notice how that shows up in this passage today as we walk through it. But let me just say one more thing. Is that some of you are asking, Jeff, why are you teaching on divorce? And I told you a little bit of the background. But the truth is, is we actually drew straws. (laughs) No, the reason I'm teaching on divorce is because Jesus taught on divorce. And if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we need to talk about all the things that he talked about. But also, I want to say this as a pastor. I've, I've walked through, over the last 32 years, I've walked through a lot of different situations with people. And while I haven't gone through divorce, and while I may not fully understand your situation, I'm praying, I'm praying that today you hear Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, speak to you right in your seat about the state of your heart and that he will give you hope and he will give you help wherever you most need it. So let me just pray and then we're going to look at what Jesus says on divorce. Now, God, I want to rely on you and I want to hold up your word high. How are over-permissive culture needs to hear what you say. How my own heart needs to hear what you have to say. So teach us from your word and teach us how to be full of grace and truth in our interactions as well. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, now I'm going to read through these verses. When we get to verse 3, I'll ask you to read it from that first gray box in the notes. When we get to verse 8, I'll ask you to read from that from the second gray box in the note. Deal? All right, here we go. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Let me stop. Some of you know that John the Baptist came and prepared the way for Jesus. This is the same area that John the Baptist did most of his ministry. You may not recognize that, but that helped me to know it. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 2, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now let's read verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, he's talking to Bible teachers now. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Would you read verse 8 with me? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I'll go on in verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Now let me just start out if you're following along the notes and and I want you to see right away what happens in this situation. If you're following along in the notes, he's tested, Jesus is tested with a loaded question. And it's a loaded question for several reasons. 
One, because he's in the region where John the Baptist had been. And you may not know this history, but John the Baptist was high truth. And he also came with grace. That's why he baptized people. But he did not hold back from calling the truth out. And so he said to Herod, who was the ruling Roman governor at that time, he said to him, it is not, it is unlawful for you to take your brother's wife. What had happened is, is that Herod had been married and he found a woman he was more interested in named Herodias. And so he had, he, they broke up his marriage and her marriage in order to get married and now they were married. And John the Baptist says, you may have pulled that off, but that's unlawful in God's sight. That was never God's design. And do you all know what Herod and Herodias did to thank John the Baptist for telling him the truth about that? They asked for his head on a silver platter. So this is a loaded question because we're in the same region. And I think that they're testing, hoping that they'll go, go tell Herod, whatever Jesus says. We know how that goes. But here's the other reason. And I want to just share from you a quote. It's kind of an extended lengthy quote from John Ortberg, but I found this helpful. So here we go. You need to know that what they're asking him about is from Deuteronomy 24, and I've listed that out to the right. You can read that more if you want to, but here's how it goes. If the husband wanted to divorce his wife in Old Testament days, he didn't have to go through a legal system. He didn't have to go through the courts. He simply sat down and wrote out a get. Just a brief writing on a piece of paper. It was called a get. He simply sat down and wrote this phrase, you are free. It meant that she had the permission to be remarried. And in Moses' day, it was actually an attempt to be more protective of the woman. Because in ancient cultures, the woman could be just dismissed without a word. And this way, it was clear. She had legal status and could remarry again, and perhaps made divorce a little harder to get. It was actually a protective device. But only a husband could do this. A wife could not do this. In an extreme case, she could appeal to a rabbinic court, and they might try to force the husband to grant her a divorce, but by Jewish law, a wife had no power to write out a get. Now, the primary phrase that was disputed by rabbis in Jesus' day in Deuteronomy 24.1 is the phrase, something objectionable. The NIV translates it, something indecent, and rabbis had enormous debates because it's a little vague, isn't it? What exactly does this mean? Now, there were two rabbinic schools of thought in Jesus' day that had two different positions on this question. I think we'll put up on the screen these names. One of them was named for this rabbi, the school of Shammai. You can see that on the right of the screen. And the other one was named for this rabbi, the school of Hillel on the left. The school of Shammai was quite strict on this question. They said something objectionable meant sexual immorality. That is, adultery alone was appropriate grounds for divorce. This was the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel was much looser about this. And there were vast numbers of writings listing that the rabbis who were part of this school believed could be appropriate grounds for divorce about something objectionable. And rabbis said things like these that were well written in Jesus' day. If she spoiled his dinner, if a wife burned his soup, a husband could divorce her. If she spoke to a man in the streets, a husband could divorce her. If she walked around with her hair unbound, her husband could divorce her. If she argued with a voice loud enough to be heard in the house next door, a husband could divorce her. 
Now, take a look at the screen again, if you would. This is from Jesus' day by a rabbi named Akiba. It says, if a man finds a woman more pleasing in appearance than his wife, he may divorce his wife. Does that scare anybody else? (laughs) Wow, man, the winds change quick on that one. Now, another statement that's a little less well-known is by Mrs. Akiba. And we put that on the screen. (laughs) If my husband thinks he's another Brad Pitt, he's lost his marbles. Now, you need to know this also, that in Jesus' day, this school, the school of Hillel, was the majority position. That was the one that dominated thinkers, rabbis teaching in Jesus' day. Most rabbis taught that something objectional meant a whole lot of latitude. Now, we've read this text. Which school does Jesus' response put him in? The school of Shammai or the school of Hillel? The school of Shammai, very clearly And he'd already gone public on this issue with the Sermon on the Mount, so it may be well that part of the test is that the group of Pharisees is trying to force Jesus to take a position that is highly unpopular. So when the test comes, notice what Jesus does if you're following along. Jesus stands by God's original intent. Oneness. O-N-E-N-E-S-S, oneness. Jesus stands by God's original intent. And I don't know about you, but it helps me to know that Jesus goes back to the beginning. He says, man, we've drifted so far, we need to remember what God originally intended because if we'll remember what God originally intended, then we can move towards it. Then we can see it clearly. But you guys have so muddied the waters for people, they don't even know the truth anymore. You become high grace, low truth. It's time to be high grace, high truth. And so Jesus does that here. And if you're following along, what I want you to see is that he says to Mary is to leave, cleave, and become one flesh. To Mary is to leave, cleave, and become one flesh. Where do I get that? If you haven't read the old King James... Uh, Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The New International Version says they shall be united to, connected to, attached to. The idea, the word here means to stick like glue. And so God's design was always for not two people just to have a casual relationship, but to have one of the most incredible committed, giving relationships on the planet. And so, if you're following along, what does it mean to cleave? What does it mean to cleave? Well, this word literally means to make a covenant, if you're following along, to make a covenant. In other words, it's not a test drive. It's not, let's experiment. It's, this is a covenant. This is binding. This is something that's meant to be for life. It was a vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. That's what is going on here. So what I want you to notice in what Jesus said, his original intent was this. God, on one hand, joins them together. This is not just something that's legal. This is something spiritual. God in marriage, believer or unbeliever. That's why John the Baptist could talk to Herod, whether he gave a rip about God's word or not. This is not God's design. So, God joins two people together, mystery, 
but also he calls us then to give ourselves to that oneness, to practice oneness by leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh. That's not just about sex, friends. That's about becoming a whole new person. And so this idea was something that really he wanted to hold up again. Now think about this. If you're trying to get out, if you're trying to give as little as you can, this is a staggering challenge to hear. I was reading, Tony Evans shares a story about a woman who once said, my husband and I have a very happy marriage. There's nothing I wouldn't do for him and there's nothing he wouldn't do for me. So we've gone through life doing nothing for each other. <laughs> now that, that is not cleaving. That is not cleaving, just in case you were unsure on that. Cleaving, my dad used to tell me that the word sometimes was used to what happened to a man's hand when he was in battle with his sword. Sometimes battles would last all day. And so at the end of the day, when he got done fighting and he would go to try and shake his hand free from that sword, he would find that it was very difficult to do because his hand had actually become part of the sword. When you cleave, you cling to, you give yourself to, you stick like glue. And he also told me that if you can just remember your kindergarten days when you used to make crafts with construction paper, I have here a blue and a white piece of paper that I glued together last night. He says, look, here's, here's, why, here's why divorce is so painful. Because if you try and separate it, it rips, it rips. Both people. You, you, don't, you don't want to go through that if you can. That, that was not God's original intent. Not at all. And so if you're following along, God meant marriage to be a relationship that lasts. God meant marriage to be a relationship that lasts. And sometimes when we hear that, we think God meant marriage to be a relationship that makes me happy all the time. No, no, friends. No, friends. It's not about being happy as much as becoming holy and people of character. Do you realize that when you put two self-centered people together in a marriage, God has a whole lot to teach them. He wants them to unlearn selfishness and learn sacrificial love, cleaving. And that means that sometimes we hurt each other. That means we definitely irritate each other sometimes. That means that it's not necessarily going to be fun all the time. The grass may look greener on the other side, but you got to cut the lawn over there too. See, the idea is, is that God is calling us into a relationship of character. It's a character-building relationship of learning how to cleave. I, I once sat with a, a guy who was a state supreme court justice in another state and he was getting divorced and he happened to be part of the church I was a pastor at in another state and he looked at me and said I shouldn't have to work at it he said this after 30 years of marriage I thought then you don't understand cleaving <laughs> you definitely should have to work at it love gives it's work and so what I want you to see is that Jesus cites sexual immorality as a basis for divorce. Oh, excuse me, the line before that I skipped. In certain cases, God permits, never commands divorce. In certain cases, God permits, never commands div divorce. What do I mean by this? Do you notice in verse 8 that we read together that they're twisting the scripture? They go, why then did Moses command that a guy had to divorce his wife? 
He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Look, God never, ever, ever, ever wanted people to be divorced. He never set it up that way. He takes into account a fallen world. But you need to know that when you say God commands, you're twisting the word God permitted as a concession, as a concession. His heart would always be to restore if possible. But now you're playing with things. You're looking for loopholes. You're actually saying, I have to do this. Come on, don't aim low like that. And so notice this, that he cites sexual immorality as a basis for divorce. He cites sexual immorality as a basis for divorce. And uh, you'll notice that in verse 9, except for sexual immorality. Again, I appreciate John Ortsberg's words on this. He says, Jesus uses the word in verse 9 for pernea. That's the word that we get the word pornography from. It's the term that was not restricted just to sexual intercourse. It referred to a number of different forms of sexual immorality. I mention this because sometimes people play games on this one, that as long as they have not technically had sexual intercourse outside of marriage, they haven't sinned. So let's just be clear on this. This could include ongoing, unrepentant, defiant involvement in pornography. The behavior that Jesus addresses here could involve various forms of sexually inappropriate behaviors with somebody to whom you're not married. So Jesus' language would say here, this is not an area to play fast and loose with. Again, just to be really clear, what Jesus forbids here could involve inappropriate embracing. You know, we all know, when we're giving inappropriate uh, appropriate expressions of affection and so on, or when we're crossing emotional and physical boundaries that you should not cross with someone you're not married to, when you're touching somebody in ways that clearly violate the spirit of this prohibition. And so Jesus says, look, that kind of stuff blows a marriage apart. It's the opposite of cleaving. It's cleaving to someone else. It's turning your heart away. You're pulling away from your marriage rather than giving yourself to the marriage. You may be doing it in your mind at first, but that's a serious deal. Hebrews 13.4 reminds us that whether you're married or not or ever plan to get married or not, let's read this together. Marriage should be honored by all. By the way, the word all there means all, okay? And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Again, high grace, high truth. And so again, nowadays we go, well, you know, the Bible says that some people have turned the grace of God into a license for immorality. They've gone, it's okay with him. It's not okay with him, friends. He hates it. Because he sees the devastation. And he never wanted that for his children. Aren't you glad he tells the truth? So, one more thing is that Jesus traces divorce, if you're following along, back to hard hearts. Jesus traces divorce back to hard hearts. Remember I told you to look for the word heart? Here it is. We already read it in verse 8. He says, look, the reason why you guys are even asking me these questions, trying to set me up, is because you're so far off the track of really wanting God's heart, that you don't even want to remember what God originally intended. You're going in the wrong direction. Why? Because your hearts are hard. He doesn't say some people's hearts. He says your hearts are hard. Wow. 
And sometimes Jesus puts his finger on something, again, not to destroy us, but to build us, to call us up. And so I don't know if this would help, be helpful to you, but I wrote these words down this morning about what my heart's like when it's hard and what my heart's like when it's tender. And on this piece of paper, I just wrote these words. Jesus holds me responsible for the state of my heart. I get to choose, and he's ready to help me. Friends, I just want to stop and say something. I hate it every time our culture says, just follow your heart. The Bible never, ever, ever, ever says that. The Bible says, guard your heart. The Bible says, lead your heart. The Bible says, soften your heart. The Bible says, turn your heart. What does that imply? You have control over your heart. So when you blame your heart for doing something immoral, that's, that's wrong thinking. So I have control over my heart. I get to choose whether I have a hard heart or a soft heart. You do too. But look at what I wrote. I, I said, a hard heart looks for ways to get out. A tender heart looks for ways to give myself. So here, just again, I'm just writing this down. Just be as honest as I can be with you. When I'm hard-hearted before God, I'm proud. And I'm unteachable. And I'm often unaware of my hard-heartedness because I'm so busy finger-pointing instead of letting the Lord show me my part in wrongdoing. I'm insensitive, I'm hurtful, even mean sometimes. I'm demanding and ungiving. I'm rude, I'm gruff, I'm critical. I make excuses, I blame. I think the worst of the other person. I'm slow to respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings. I'm uncooperative, I'm unrepentant, stubborn, stiff-necked, rigid, unleadable. And when I'm like this, I give the devil a foothold. When I'm tender-hearted before God, however, I'm humble. I'm teachable. I'm quick to respond and make things right. I am responsive to the Holy Spirit's promptings and I try to keep short accounts. I'm correctable, I'm cooperative, I'm willing, I'm kind, I'm giving, I'm much more thoughtful and servant-hearted, I'm leadable, I'm shapeable, and the Lord's grace is upon me when I choose this posture every just this week Trish and I are losing our hearing and so uh, just on a daily basis uh, I think she said one thing and I'll jump to conclusions and she says something and she'll jump to conclusions and I noticed that hard heartedness doesn't start out big it usually starts out small just low grade irritation like oh my god and so she said something to me and, and she immediately, I said something back and she immediately jumped and it made sense later why she said what she did. But I remember thinking, so, oh brother. And all of a sudden I could just tell my heart was going from soft to pulling back a little harder, a little less responsive. And I could tell the Holy Spirit says, keep short accounts. You ever seen concrete when it's soft? You can make an impression. When it's hard, you can make no impression. And I know that some of you, you've watched your hearts grow hard because you got hurt and burned 
and mistreated by another person. And so the natural protective layer goes out like it should, like God made it to. But if you're not careful, that protective layer can become a concrete wall. And so Jesus says, watch the state of your heart. Remember God's original intention, but watch the state of your heart. And so notice that in the New Testament, here's some other biblical counsel on divorce as we bring this home, is that there's one other way that God permits biblical divorce, and that's in cases of abandonment. In cases of abandonment. I list out to the right 1 Corinthians 7. I'll just say this quickly, that Paul had to deal, the Apostle Paul with his apostolic authority, had to deal when the church first was created. There had never been Christians before. And so some people would come to trust Christ and it would be just one of the spouses. The other spouse would not be interested. So the question that they brought to the leaders was, what do I do now? Should I stay married or should I marry someone else who's a Christian? And Paul's counsel was, if they want to stay, stay in that marriage. If they want to go, let them go. But build for peace. Do not do that. But he also talked about the idea of abandonment in that in 1 Timothy 5.8. Whoever does not take care of their own family is worse than an unbeliever. There is abandonment, desertion, neglect in ways that are far serious. And in those cases, those need to be looked at carefully. In some cases, because of alcohol, drugs, gambling, and all kinds of other selfish behaviors, friends, marriages are blown apart. And sometimes it calls for a protection. Do I need to say that if you're in a violent relationship, Jesus is not asking you to stay in that relationship without getting some separation? And I, I hate even having to talk about this, but if you're in one of those, I know it's scary. And I know you wonder if you'll be harmed for doing this, but you need to get to a safe place. Jesus is not commanding you to stay in that marriage without some recourse. And you may not end up getting divorced, but here's what I want to say. If you're the person doing that in a marriage, I plead with you. There may be all kinds of reasons why you're hurting someone that God wants to get to the root of but when is it going to stop? That is not pleasing to God. He has an original intent for you as well, and he wants to make you a different person. But this kind of stuff has to be acknowledged. And so abandonment, sexual immorality, unfaithfulness like that, these are the things that blow marriages apart. And that God, because he is a God of grace and truth, makes concession for. If you're following along in the notes, notice that oneness and reconciliation in marriage takes two. And God knows this. God knows this. Friends, I hope you know that Jesus did not walk on this planet unaware of what fallen human nature does in a world. Relationships are tricky. Relationships are some of the hardest work, some of the most complicated things in life, and God knows this. So he's not up there just giving commands. He sent his own son to walk on this earth and he took all the kinds of abuse, all the kinds of harsh treatment that any person has ever taken. So he's not saying words he's disconnected from. And I want you to know that the Bible says as far as is possible with you, be at peace with all people. In other words, can you look in your heart and say, I'm doing everything I can to make for peace in this relationship. The Bible's saying sometimes after you've done all that repeatedly, it's still not possible 
for that relationship to be saved. And in those terribly painful situations, God knows and does not hold you responsible for the other person's responsibility. But also it does mean, I hope you're all hearing me, it does mean that there's times where you have to have boundaries. Where you, it's not just all about you just letting people run over you either. But it's saying, I want to make sure I do my part, but also I'm going to hold you responsible for your part where you cannot just come and abuse me. And so this last couple lines I want you to see is that Jesus can forgive, restore, and give life after divorce. Some of you really need to hear this. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, friends. In one place in the Old Testament, Jesus says, I divorced Israel. There are times, but it should always be a last resort. Restoration should always be our first aim. But Jesus can forgive, restore, and give life after divorce. If you look on the back of the notes, I've listed the three R's. To heal from divorce or before considering your marriage, there needs to be three things considered. One is repentance. And even if your divorce was not mostly your fault, there's still room for repentance, for humbling yourself before God and saying, what is it that maybe you want me to see? There's also the need for reconciliation. And notice reconciliation doesn't mean having ice cream with that person every night. But it does mean being willing to release, untie, or forgive, no longer holding bitterness towards someone, speaking ill of someone. And it also means remaining unmarried for a time. If you're the person that is getting divorced unbiblically, then these three things are huge. Huge, especially the first two. And the elders have had to deal at times with people that are completely unrepentant. They have no regrets about being unfaithful or divorcing someone unbiblically. And those situations are heartbreaking. But these are some ways to heal and spin out. And uh, this week, I was meditating about this subject. And across the tick of my mind came the reminder of John 4. Some of you know the woman at the well that Jesus met. The Bible says he had to go to Samaria to meet her. He meets her in the middle of the day. She's getting water because she's so filled with shame. She doesn't want to run into anybody else while she's getting water. Why? Because it quickly comes out when he says, hey, would you give me a drink? And they get in a conversation. He says, go get your husband. Go bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're so right. You've had five husbands. Count them, five. And you're currently living with the man that you're with. So she's miles from God's original intention, and here Jesus is meeting with her, full of grace and truth. And he looks at her and says, I can give you living water, change you from the inside, so you stop blowing up relationships or stop failing in relationship. And she goes into town and says, come meet the man who told me everything I've ever done and hundreds come out to meet Jesus and they believe in Jesus like she does why am I telling you that God can redeem your life aren't you glad he is full of grace and truth in my own family my sister-in-law who's been a missionary for 23 years now came back in the early 80s to Springfield after her marriage was blown up by her husband. And unfaithfulness and came back with two little bambinos. They're now men who have their own families. 
And she wondered if she could ever serve God. And for the last 23 years, 24 years, she has been faithful in the Philippines and God has done something new in her life. One more observation. My dad said to me years ago, have you ever noticed that some of the most faithful, compassionate ministers in our church are those who have gone through an unwanted divorce and God redeemed them and gave them a heart for people and gave them a calling in life. And friends, I want to be a church that's made up of broken people, whether married or unmarried, who are living in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, serving alongside of each other as he redeems us. And this last thing I want you to see is this. Jesus died to give us a new and responsive heart. Jesus died to give us a new and responsive heart. Would you read Ezekiel 36, 26 with me as we prepare for communion? And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And so God knew that we didn't just need to try harder. We needed a new heart. And so in order to make that possible, he had to die in our place so that God could both forgive us and then give us a new heart and a new spirit. An amazing miracle called being born again. And so that's what we want to remember is that that's what he came to do. He didn't just come to teach us. He came to change us. And he came to work in our lives. And so as we prepare for communion, some of you know that 1 Corinthians 11 is often the passage we refer back to that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Afterwards, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this. As often as you drink this and take this bread and take this cup, you declare, you hold up, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, then there's one more verse I want you to see in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Let's read it together. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In other words, self-examination, communion is not only meant to encourage us and remind us that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. High grace, but also high truth. He challenges us. Is your heart, is your heart moving towards softer heart? And then one more verse that I want us to read together from Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Would you read it with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 